You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. I want to invite you as you're taking your seats to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, specifically to verse 18. Chapter 15, verse 18, and there'll be a slide that'll tell you the number, page number in the Pew Bible that's there, if that's what you're using, or if you're using a, a, a tablet or a phone and you use the Version Bible app, those are little instructions right there will take you right to our scripture this morning. John, chapter 15, starting at verse 18. I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. Has anyone ever said that to you? And let me just, let's just take this, get this out of the way. Which one do you prefer to hear first? How many of you or people want to hear the good news first? Raise your hand. Good news first, people. Few and far between. How many of you want to hear the bad news first? There we go. All right. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Have you ever had to say that to someone else? And which do you prefer when you're on that end of the conversation? Do you prefer to share the good news first or the bad news? How many want to share the good news first? Raise your hand. Oh, okay, a couple people crossing over. I like that. And how many of you want to share the bad news first? Okay, there you are. You're going to enjoy today then, those of those, that last group. Um, it's not always easy to tell people hard truths. As we have been continuing through this Lenten season, we are listening to Jesus share final instructions to his disciples as they make their way toward the Garden of Gethsemane. This is more formally known as Jesus' farewell discourse because he's about to hand himself over to die. And as we get to this part of the conversation, in particular, Jesus is going to speak some hard truths. Having articulated in the first part of this chapter 15 his call for us to go and be fruitful, Jesus is now about to offer us an honest upfront assessment of what we will be facing in following him. He could have sugarcoated it. Jesus could have hidden what was ahead. But instead, as we'll hear, Jesus tells us the hard truth. He starts with the bad news first. But as always with Jesus, the bad news is always eclipsed by the good news, the gospel. Now, as we're easing into this, So far in this this conversation that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, Jesus has talked a lot about love that leads to obedience. Now, Jesus speaks about how that same love that leads to obedience also will lead others to act with hatred. Hear how he begins in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And Jesus goes on. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. 
I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Jesus here at the start is trying to give his disciples, and that means us, some needed perspective. Jesus reminds them of something that he told them much earlier in the conversation. No servant is greater than his or her master. This principle that Jesus provides was first related to serving others like he had done them. But now Jesus applies this same principle to the outcome of following him. We will be persecuted by the world for following Jesus. Jesus uses the world in this passage a lot. And so it begs the question, who or what exactly is the world? Now, at one level, the world is the whole created universe, and that's not what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus is referring to the world on another level. When Jesus talks of the world, he's talking about this broken moral order of which we were once a part. The world, as Jesus speaks of it, refers to this deep-seated posture that turns away from our creator in willful rebellion. The world is life that tries to be organized and operated independently of God by feeding pride, greed, and envy through indulging rage, lust, and gluttony by remaining content with apathy. This is what Jesus is speaking about when he speaks of the world. And Jesus, if you were listening carefully, says we do not belong to this world this sort of life we once knew because Jesus has called us out of it. In other words, to follow Jesus is to live differently than we once did before. To follow Jesus is to live like Jesus. And living like Jesus will lead to being persecuted. Jesus gets real specific. It'll lead to being put out of the synagogue. When Jesus speaks these words in his time, in his day, the synagogue was the centerpiece of Jewish life. To be put out of the synagogue was to be cut off from one's whole community. Your parents and your friends could no longer have anything to do with you. No one would sell, trade, exchange, or otherwise engage with you at all. What Jesus is doing here by referencing this image is telling us living like Jesus runs the risk of losing everything having one's whole social standing and livelihood completely taken away. In fact, Jesus goes even further if you were listening. Jesus says following him, living like him, can even lead to losing one's life, being murdered as an offering of worship to God. And Jesus has already experienced this reality firsthand, right? I mean, how many times so far in the Gospel of John has Jesus already nearly been stoned on the grounds of defending God. And right now, Jesus stands on the verge of walking into the cauldron of the world's hatred. He will be tortured. He will be nailed to a cross, hung up shamefully, nakedly, bruised, and humiliated for public display, all in the name of protecting and honoring God, or at least their perception of God. And something else you might have caught in this conversation is Jesus frames this persecution of himself and those who follow him in terms of they, which begs the question again, who are the they Jesus refers to here? They 
are those to whom Jesus has come, those to whom Jesus has spoken. They, they are those who have seen the works of Christ, works that no one else can do, and yet choose to remain blind, choose to hate the Son. And why do they hate the Son? Jesus says, because they do not know the Father or me. How is this possible? How can it be if they have, these are the ones to whom Jesus has come, these are the ones to whom Je they've heard Jesus speak, they have heard and seen the works of Christ that no one else can do, how can it be that they don't know the Father or Jesus? And this is very important because they are approaching God and evaluating Jesus based on their perceptions and desires of who God should be of what the Messiah should be like. They are trying to make the Father and Jesus fit into their box, but God doesn't fit into our box, so therefore they cannot accept what they see. The gospel insists we must learn afresh who God is and who we are by looking at Jesus. It's not the other way around. Evaluating and embracing Jesus based upon our limited, faulty, and broken perceptions and ideas about God and ourselves. Whenever we only accept a Jesus who makes things right in terms of our view of what is right, rather than submitting to the Jesus who wants to make not things, but us right, in terms of God's plan for who we were created to be, we aren't following Jesus, we are worshiping ourselves. And in case we're, we're tempted to hear in Jesus' talk like this, to hear Jesus' words in terms of an us versus them, we need to always remember something, church. They are us. Before the grace of God took hold of our lives, we all were once them. We must never forget, and I can't underline this more, we must never forget, we worship, we follow the God in Christ who became one of us to reach all of them. When we only accept a Jesus who makes things right in our perception of what is right and don't submit to a Jesus who instead wants to make us right, for God's plans of who we were created to be, we aren't following Jesus, we are worshiping ourselves. And when we worship ourselves, we will hate and we will seek to destroy whatever or whoever threatens the altar of me. Fear is always behind the need to persecute. Fear is always behind the need to persecute. We bully others because we fear facing the pain and loneliness within ourselves. We love ourselves at the expense of everyone else. We love ourselves at the expense of everyone else because we fear that otherwise we will not be loved at all. Jesus, however, calls us not to love ourselves at the cost of everyone else, but to love one another selflessly sacrificially loving one another is how we experience both the fullness of the love that God has for us and at the same time loving one another is how we reveal to everyone else the love that God has for all people beloved the world sees Jesus's love in the way Jesus's people 
love one another. But not everyone's going to like it. Not everyone is going to receive this radical, transformative love. Those who fear it, those who choose to reject this kind of love expressed in the name of Jesus will hate those who express it and will persecute those who propagate it in the same way that they did to Jesus. In many ways, this is the cross we bear for Christ. When Jesus talks about, take up your cross and follow me, this is the cross we bear for Christ. Being sent into the world to reflect the presence of God to become the living embodiment of the love of Christ where there is the absence of God and not always being embraced or thanked for it. If we live like Jesus, if we love like Jesus, we will be persecuted for following Christ. But at this point, I think it's so important that we clarify what is and what is not persecution for following Jesus. When Jesus talks about persecution here, I think in our Western world, in our Western eyes, in the Western church, the church in the United States, we really don't understand what Jesus is invoking when he talks about persecution. So very briefly, I want to make it clear what is and what is not persecution for following Jesus. And I'm sorry if I'm blunt here, but I don't know any other way to say this. We are not, people, being persecuted when the stores we frequent, like Starbucks, stop saying Merry Christmas on their coffee cups and instead wish us Happy Holidays. We are not being persecuted if the administration at our school or our employer holds to a common standard of expected conduct and doesn't allow us to wear a t-shirt at school or at work with a message about Jesus. We are not being persecuted when we have to live alongside people who do not share our faith, who practice a different faith than ours, or who might even strongly disagree with what we believe. We are not persecuted when we are offended by anti-Christian messages on TV, at the movies, or on the radio. The shift in our culture and throughout the world in its understanding of the significance of Christ and its accommodation for Christianity may be unfamiliar to us. It may make us uncomfortable. But this by itself is not oppression or persecution. Guys, this is the landscape of the mission field to which we have been called to reveal the kingdom of God. The reality of Christian persecution in today's world is this. More disciples of Jesus are dying now than at any time in the history of the church. Did you know that? More disciples are dying, more disciples of Christ are dying now than at any time in the history of the church. What I'm trying to say to you is the follower of Jesus in Iraq isn't worried about being able to wear a Christian t-shirt or whether their latte comes in a more friendly, Christian-friendly coffee cup. The follower of Jesus in Iraq is praying they won't be decapitated for their faith in Christ. That's persecution. The Christian in Saudi Arabia isn't feeling oppressed because atheists keep renting billboards around town or posting their beliefs on Facebook. 
The Christian in Saudi Arabia is praying their family won't be arrested or beaten to death for attending church. That's persecution. The follower of Christ in the Sudan doesn't perceive harassment in movies, TV, radio, or advertisements that are undermining a Christian moral view of the world. The follower of Christ in the Sudan is praying if they make it to a refugee camp, they aren't killed in front of their children for following Jesus. That's persecution. Not every form of persecution, however, for a Christian involves physical abuse or martyrdom. Nor does it always have to. There are many more subtle, passive-aggressive forms of persecution that can come for following Christ. Discrimination, prejudice, humiliation, shaming, being ignored, being mocked, not being given a voice, not being given legal protection. But this is the point. The point is we are persecuted not so much for what we believe. We are persecuted for who we follow. Following Jesus is not about the clothes we wear. It's not about the building or the campus we occupy. It's not about the media outlets we support or even if and how we get to praise Jesus in public. Following Jesus is living like Jesus. It's engaging others and being part of a community and facing circumstances the way Jesus did. Following Jesus, living like Jesus is embracing the stranger. It's standing up for the marginalized. It's caring for the hurting, no matter who they are, what the color of their skin is, what their gender or sexual orientation is. Following Jesus, living like Jesus, is forgiving those who are deemed unforgivable and speaking truth in the face of lies. Live like that, follow Jesus like that, and you will be persecuted. But again, we need to make a careful distinction, though. Not all people who claim to follow Jesus live in a way that resembles Christ. Not everyone who says that they follow Jesus lives in a way that resembles Christ. What do I mean by that? What I mean is if you're a person sitting here today and you relish disturbing the status quo, you relish being outraged for the, si for the sake of picking a fight, if you're somebody who lives to judge and criticize others in order to seek the limelight and justify yourself, if you just think it's awesome that you're so abrasive, rude, and inflammatory for the sake of shock and awe, if you're doing this to get attention and you think that you're doing this because you're acting in the name of Jesus and that when people respond negatively to you, you somehow are being persecuted for Christ, stop kidding yourself. Stop kidding yourself. Any unfavorable or hateful pushback we receive when we act like that is not a result of being persecuted for Christ. It is a result of our provocation of others in the name of Jesus. And yet many of us, I know, we're, you know, lots of thoughts, but you know, we got to defend God. We got to stand up for Jesus. Let me tell you something, and I've said this before and I'm saying it again, and I'm going to keep saying it until it sinks in. You don't need to defend God. God can take care of himself. When I was a little kid, <laughs> I was on the playground with a bunch of other kids, and one kid and I were kind of getting into a little jawing back and forth, and all of a sudden that kid in the midst of the jawing back and forth said something about my mom. And I immediately hauled off and just threw him down, pushed him down. And I said, nobody says that about my mom. And immediately the aide came and dragged me into the principal's office. And I got sent home early that day, my mom got called to pick me up. 
And I'll never forget this. My mom said, tell you know, what happened? You know, what, what happened? And I told the whole story what was going on. I told him what he said. And I pushed him down and I said, nobody talks about my mom like that. And I expected my mom to be like, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> right on, yeah. And I'll never forget this. My mom said, Chris, I don't need you to defend me. I can take care of myself. But I do need you to represent me. Is this how I raised you? Is this how we treat another person? God doesn't need us to defend him. God can take care of himself, but what God wants, what God desires, is for us to represent him. And the thing is, and what we often miss, is in the name of defending God, which God doesn't need, we often do not represent who he truly is. I, again, I, I, I just, I know some of you are, you know, you got, but yeah, there's another but coming in there. I, I want you to hear this in the midst of everything I'm saying. It's one thing to take a principled stand for the sake of justice and in the name of Jesus. I'm not saying there aren't times when we need to take a stand in the name of justice and in the name of Jesus. It's perfectly appropriate, hear this church, for us to use everything within our legal reach to fight for the rights of others, including ourselves. Paul, in the book of Acts, often appealed to his, his status as a Roman citizenship, citizen for legal protection. By all means, as followers of Jesus, we ought to be present and we ought to be heard. What I am saying is that along the way, let us also not forget to be humble and loving. Let us not confuse or mistake taking a principal stand for Christ with acting out of revenge, out of bitterness, or self-promotion. Because when we act out of revenge, when we act out of bitterness, when we act out of self-promotion, we are falsely representing Jesus. These kinds of behaviors are certainly not what Jesus stood for. They are not what Christ was about. Following Jesus is living like Jesus. And Jesus taught us. He modeled for us loving our enemies. Praying for those who are hostile to or persecute us. Following Jesus is living like Jesus. And Jesus told us. He showed us, right? What surrendering the desire for revenge in our hearts and with our hands looks like. Jesus never lashed out. He never made sure others got what they deserve. In fact, Jesus repeatedly offers what none of us deserve. Forgiveness. Grace. Redemption. Following Jesus is living like Jesus. And Jesus commanded us and he practiced what he preached in showing mercy. The cross of Christ points us in the only direction that can pierce the conscience and the heart of this broken, rebellious world. Jesus does not forsake, but consistently cares for those who do not care for him. Following Jesus, living like Jesus, beloved, is going and doing likewise. And when we go and do likewise, that's when the persecution comes. I mean, think about this. Do you know your church history at all? The first generations of Christians gave everything and lost much from the world's vantage point in order to follow Jesus, in order to live like Christ. Refusing to accept the lines drawn by class and privilege, they took care of those rejected by Roman society. 
They endured the threats, the rejection and abuse of their families, their communities, and the government for the sake of revealing to the forsaken, the forgotten, and the abandoned that they were precious to God, that they belonged to Christ's kingdom too. They accepted being seen as different and strange and just kept sharing Jesus, even at the cost of their well-being, even at the cost of their very lives. And what's the fruit? Look around, here we are. The body of Christ has grown and flourished thanks to their witness. Jesus tells us in this passage, as you heard, he says, I tell you all of this so that we, he says, I tell you all this so you won't fall away. Jesus warns us in advance so we will always remember when we forget. And there is great assurance in remembering what Jesus told us to expect because remembering assures us that if Jesus knew all the way back then, then Jesus also knows about what's happening now. And Jesus is with us. And we need to remember. We need to remember. We need to remember what Jesus says here because ironically, what Jesus shares here is dramatically different from how the experience of being a Christian is often framed in today's church. You know, the way that we share the gospel with other people is God has a wonderful plan for your life. Accept Jesus and your life's gonna be great. It's going to be awesome, and there's truth in that. But we fail to mention the, the little footnote, the additional proviso, that following Jesus comes at a cost. That following Jesus means we will suffer. There will be persecution. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, man, if we told people that, who'd want to follow Jesus? I mean, what kind of selling point is that? But notice Jesus here doesn't wait till later to mention this. He right from the outset says, guys... Gals, this is what it looks like to live like me. This is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it's going to be about. And I, I recognize, we, I mean, this is not a passage that comes up in our morning devotionals, right? This is, not, this is not the stuff we want to hear. Maybe today, I don't know where you are and how your knowledge of the Bible, of, your, of, of where you are in your faith walk, but you might be even surprised and shocked by what Jesus tells us here. I mean, it, this is a fairly bitter pill to swallow. All this talk about hatred and persecution and death is hard to hear. This isn't the Christianity I signed up for. You know, and if we push it further and we think, okay, if this is, the, this is what's to expect, this is what it's like, and then we go, wait a second, and if the, the first disciples, I mean, the ones who were there, heard this and they faltered and stumbled, even disowned Christ, how can the future of the kingdom of God be secure in our hands? I mean, if we recognize ourselves in them, if this is us, how can we know whether we'll be strong enough to actually follow Jesus, to live like Jesus? If this is the bad news, what can possibly be the good news? And Jesus tells us, as he says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And he goes on, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The good news is we are not alone. 
Jesus speaks once again in this conversation of the promised arrival of the Holy Spirit. And in this section of John, the Greek term that Jesus uses to talk about the Holy Spirit literally translates the one who is called alongside. If following Jesus is living like Jesus, we can only follow Christ and live like him through the power of the Holy Spirit. The good news is it's not primarily about us, what we are able to do on our own. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is the advocate, the counselor who comes alongside us to guide us, to support us, to comfort us in times of trial and difficulty. In the midst of our distress, our confusion, our forgetfulness, Jesus says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, offers us insight, perspective, and encouragement about what is yet to come. The good news is the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to follow Jesus, to live like Christ. Jesus says the Holy Spirit speaks to us, testifies to our hearts and minds about him so that we have both the words and actions to testify to others, to show them the truth about Jesus by living like Christ. It's the spirit of Jesus that shapes our thoughts and gives us the words to be the salt of the earth, to add the flavor of forgiveness and grace, to offer the preservation of love and mercy of the kingdom of God through our words and actions for Christ. It is the spirit of Christ that strengthens our resolve and boosts our faith to be the light of the world to help the lost see and to serve as a beacon in the dark for the searching through our compassion and service in the name of Jesus. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we aren't relying on the Holy Spirit now, we won't rely on the Holy Spirit when trouble comes our way. Hear that. If you aren't relying on the Holy Spirit now, you will not rely on the Holy Spirit when trouble comes your way. If we aren't relying on the Holy Spirit now to forgive someone for their Facebook post that offended us, we aren't going to rely on the Spirit to forgive someone when they inflict financial or physical pain on us or our family because of Christ. And when I say relying on the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about submitting to, yielding to the Spirit. Reliance on the Holy Spirit is a mindset. It's a posture. It's a habit. If those Bibles are still open, it's not on the screen. This is what Jesus is talking about in verses 23 and 24 when he speaks about asking for things in his name. Jesus doesn't say, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Jesus says, whatever you ask for in my name. And this is what he's tapping into. When you ask to be centered in his mind, in the heart and the will of Christ, you will receive everything everything you need. Relying on the Spirit is submitting our thoughts, our feelings, our decisions, and our actions, and letting them be shaped by the Spirit. It's not yielding to the Spirit when we've exhausted all of our resources and other options. It's bringing all of our resources and all of our options to the Spirit and being directed by the Spirit from the start. And for many of us, this is not how we operate. We exhaust everything else, all the options we have, all the resources we have, and then all of a sudden we're like, oh yeah, pray. Oh yeah, God. In a case of emergency, break glass. But the reality is, that's not going to happen. You're not going to rely on the Holy Spirit when it gets harder if you're not relying on the Holy Spirit in just the day-to-day -day right now. 
Relying on the Spirit is how we learn. Relying on the Holy Spirit is how we're empowered to bear fruit for the kingdom. Not out of our strength, but through our weakness, out of our poverty, through our failures, even our death. Beloved, are you relying on the Spirit now? Or are you waiting until later? Because if you wait until later, it won't happen. The Spirit will be there, but you'll be looking everywhere else but there. Now, if, if hearing all this, if this conversation as we've looked at the last couple weeks still has us kind of not really fully getting it, if how this all works escapes us, be at peace because you're in good company. If those Bibles are open as the conversation continues, the disciples just openly say they don't understand everything Jesus is saying. They don't understand it all. And Jesus then responds with this beautiful analogy to help them see how bad news can lead to good news. He says, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. He goes on, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is the time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Jesus uses this metaphor of a woman in labor. It's this repeated image from prophets like Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah. And he, he, he taps into this idea that a woman in childbirth experiences a tremendous and an agonizing amount of pain in the midst of delivering that child. But in the minute that child is delivered, there's this radical reversal of pain that becomes an even greater joy. Joy when all of a sudden she's holding that child in her arms. Jesus says that's how bad news becomes good news in the kingdom. And the immediate application of this picture that Jesus paints for the disciples is going to happen in the next few days for them, right? The next few days are going to be really painful. The disciples are going to grieve, Jesus says, while the rest of the world celebrates his death. But then the tables will be turned and their grief will turn to joy with Jesus' resurrection. The broader understanding of this picture, this analogy Jesus gives us, relates to our ongoing journey of following Christ. It's this, people. Following Jesus doesn't always come easy. Following Jesus doesn't always come easy. Living like Jesus comes at a cost. Flourishing in Christ does not happen without dying to yourself. To live more, we must die daily more and more to ourselves. We have to die to our self-centeredness. We have to die to our prejudices and compulsions. We have to die to our desire for power and recognition. And with each death, as painful as it may be, and it is painful, with each death, we will rise to a greater joy, the greater joy of a deeper intimacy and unity with the heartbeat of God. My friends, the harvest of the kingdom is work. Let's not kid ourselves. The harvest of the kingdom is work, and the work of the harvest will be met by all kinds of resistance. There will be struggles. There will be suffering. Not everyone will understand or accept our allegiance to Jesus. In order to say yes to Jesus, we will have to say no to many ways of thinking, speaking, and doing things in this world that run counter to Christ. 
But on the other side of that hard cost of following Jesus, on the other side of that sometimes painful work of the harvest of the kingdom is the birth of a greater joy, the joy of Christ's victory. Jesus ends this entire discourse. What's going to come next that we're going to look at is Jesus praying. But Jesus ends what he says to his disciples and to us with these powerful words. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus reminds us in the thick of whatever we go through, we have the joy of his peace, the peace that comes from knowing and trusting he has overcome the world. Beloved, wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus today, The peace of Christ belongs to you. The peace of knowing that nothing can separate you from our Father's love. The victory of Jesus' resurrection is the inaugural step, the seed of your transformation into your best self. Becoming that person in Christ takes time. And it is not without its growth pains. But take heart. Take heart this morning. No matter how little you understand, no matter how often you fail, no matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how much you miss along the way in seeking to follow Jesus, the peace of Christ of knowing you remain in the palm of the Lord's hands is yours. And whatever you're facing today in your walk with Jesus, Hear this, the peace of Christ is yours. The peace of knowing that on the other side of each and every struggle you're facing, there will be goodness and mercy. Take heart. No matter the challenge or the suffering you are dealing with, in Christ, wrongs will be righted. Evil will not have the last word. The truth will prevail. And divine love will conquer all in following Jesus by the grace of God and living like Christ through the Holy Spirit. We shall overcome through the truth and love of the one who overcomes the world. The one who is changing this world from the inside and making every.